There are three topics that we prayerfully will attempt to go through today, and that is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as it pertains to our obedience in the repentance, baptism, and infilling of the Holy Spirit. So we do believe that the gospel is something that we believe, but it is also something that we obey. And so Peter tells them how to obey the gospel when on the birthday of the church they ask, men and brethren, what must we do? And he said, repent, be baptized, be filled. <laughs> and that corresponds to the death on the cross in repentance, the burial in the tomb likened to baptism, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit likened to resurrection. And we feel like we started at this conference with unity and my dad wrote a book called Dying to Death, and he, he subtitled it The Missing Essential of Repentance. <laughs> and we do believe that if you were to consider the moments throughout history where the church has grown, where the church has matured, where the church's witness was consistent, those seasons would be marked by repentance. Because repentance removes the competitor, the God who is trying to make himself king, and therefore it makes possible the kingdom of the only one we're supposed to call Lord and Master. No kingdom divided against itself can stand. And that's what the church is. It is a kingdom divided against itself, where there is more than one ambition, more than one will, more than one design, more than one king. <laughs> and that has to be resolved before there can be unity. Brother Howard and I were asked to speak at a, um, a school of theology, and I gave a talk on the history of the church, and when I was done, uh, the dean of the school said, I have one question. He said, I speak to pastors every week from around the world, and they all ask me, what is the next step for the church? And, and I told him, it's going to sound too simple, but the next step for the church is repentance. Because you cannot see the Lord bring together the building elements if those elements are still fighting with each other. And what solves the fighting is repentance. <laughs> You know, we want to we think in terms of accommodating unrepentance. That's not a word you'll find in the dictionary, but it's one I'm going to use today. Unrepentance, we want to figure out how to accommodate that through techniques, through style, through programs. And it's just a dead-end exercise in futility. If God has not taken the throne of an individual's life in a powerful experience of conversion, it is not going to work. The church cannot be built. That is the starting point. And so if we're, if, if we're looking to be part of a greater understanding or a, a fuller revelation and realization of the body of Christ, this is a very important topic. And if you're looking to be grafted in to such an expression of the body of Christ, this is the most essential topic. We know that 
the scripture presents repentance as something that prepares, something that makes ready the way of the Lord. In Matthew 3, it says, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I think I've done a whole teaching in times past on the phrase, Repent for. But there's no place in the Bible where it simply says repent. It always says repent for. Something can happen. Something is at hand. A promise awaits. And you need to repent in order to get it. So he says, repent for the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So God wants to do something upon the earth. God wants to raise a witness and a kingdom upon the earth and he sends the messenger of repentance to prepare a landing place where His will can settle upon the earth. Repentance does that. Mark 1 and 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This is Luke 3. John came in the, around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins as it is written in the words of Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready. Three Gospels say that it starts with repentance. It starts with John's message to prepare. What does that suggest to us? The idea that it is our duty our responsibility to give God easier access into our lives. That suggests that we have roadblocks on the path that the Lord wants to walk down. That, that suggests that we have tire punctures. <laughs> Everybody know what those are? You know, the, the puncture strips? You ever seen when the, when the man is fleeing from the cops and the cops will lay a puncture strip across the path? so that the man will flatten his tires. We have developed mechanisms to resist the Holy Spirit. We have developed roadblocks and mechanisms to oppose the authority of God in our lives. And we want to slow Him down. That's what roadblocks do when you're entering a military base. They put roadblocks so that the car has to zigzag and slow down as much as possible perhaps even to stop them. That's what tire puncture strips do. And that's what we do. But repentance comes and clears all that out and says, give God direct and easy, straight access right into your heart, right into your life to speak what needs to be spoken. I said on Sunday that when Jesus began to cleanse the temple, 
they became offended at him and they challenged his authority. Remember? And how did he respond to that? He immediately knew that they had not borne fruits of repentance because these roadblocks wouldn't be in his path if they had. He's steamrolling in <laughs> to the temple. He didn't ask for an invitation. He didn't wait for an appointment. He is steamrolling into the temple, flipping tables, turning over money boxes, and chasing everybody out. And they're freaking out. And he says, I see that the way has not been prepared. I see that you have not borne fruits in keeping with repentance. You still have the roadblocks up. Repentance removes that and gives direct access. It prepares the soul to encounter Christ, to encounter the Anointed One, to encounter the Lordship of Jesus. So we repent for. My dad has said that repentance shifts centers <clears throat> from self to God. We revolve around our needs. We revolve around our fears. We revolve around our ambitions our desires, our images. That's what we are concerned. That's how our, think, that our thoughts orbit around those, those things. We orbit around the center of self. But repentance uproots that center like a tree out of ground and helps us to change that center to be the things, to not be concerned only with our own welfare, as Paul says, but that of another and of God. In Matthew 4, we see the next step in the ministry. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I would say that the level of repentance that God is calling all of us to, even all of us who have already come to repentance, this message is for us today. Amen. The level that He is calling all of us to will not be worth it unless we see some expression of the kingdom that we prize more than ourselves. Amen. And we say, God, I think I can repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark, it says, now John, now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Amen? So why do we repent? We repent for. We repent for what God is promising to do among us, to do through us. We repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repentance is not an end of itself. It's a preparation work. And it is not merely saying sorry for things you did. Repentance is dying to who you are. <laughs> That's a big difference. Everybody can say, I'm sorry, a thousand times a day. I'd like to, I, I would like in repentance, I'd, I, would, I would say apologies are surrendering a battle. And repentance is surrendering the war. Do you understand? Strategically, you can lose a lot of battles and still be invested in the war. You can say, let's cut our losses here. Oh yes, I'm so sorry. Uh, please forgive me. I make mistakes. And you can do that over and over and over. And that can actually be a strategy to still win the war of keeping King Self on the throne. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? 
So that's not repentance. That's not laying the axe to the root of the tree in John the Baptist's words. That's not pulling something up by the root. That's, that's cutting branches. That's saying, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you got me. I lost. You win. You win. I'm so sorry. And that's all that a child can do. I'm so sorry. Yes, please forgive me, Mommy. I forgive you, son. I forgive you, daughter. Okay, did you tell your brother you're sorry? No, say it like you mean it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. But that's not repentance. Because repentance is the first part of the gospel, which is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Repent and believe the gospel. But it's also repent and obey the gospel. We're told by Peter and by Paul in Thessalonians that we have to obey the gospel. It says, God will deal out retribution, 2 Thessalonians 1.8, to those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it is not merely a belief of what Jesus did. There is a participation. That belief has got to turn into actions of obedience. And we cannot, we cannot um, fulfill the, the requirement of the gospel to die simply by apologizing. We have to fulfill that by dying to something. Dying to the reign of tyrant self-will. That is our cross. Just on what you said a minute ago about it's not just being sorry, I think the distinction that Paul makes to the Corinthians when he speaks to them about how uh, he's, it's in 2 Corinthians 7, he says, Now I rejoice that you were made, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Amen. He's making very clear that sorrow is not necessarily synonymous with repentance. Amen. As he goes on, For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. And we can, you know, there's, there's just different types of sorrow. And it is part of the process Amen. of coming to repentance. Like, you know, James, it is, I think he says, who says, lament and mourn and weep and howl. And yeah. I mean, there is great anguish when we are confronted with what our sin looks like in God's eyes and how we have harmed other people and, and the mess we've made of things. There is great anguish involved, but we ought not be deceived that that anguish is repentance. Amen. It is a question of what do we do with it? Amen. Where does it lead us? Because we've all probably seen people and maybe even been there ourselves where we felt so terrible and it just led to self-pity. Amen. It just led to more turning in and I'm just a failure and I'm a this and that and this self-flagellation thing, you know, that doesn't lead to faith. Amen. Doesn't lead us to God, doesn't lead us to His feet to find an answer. Amen. Instead, we just go in more circles Amen. as we spiral down into our into our into self. Amen. So it's not really sorrow, godly sorrow, unless it's leading you out of self Amen. and into into a, a center in God. Just looking at the other passages where he says about obeying the gospel, he says in, in 1 Peter 4, he says, For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel? 
And he tells us what that outcome is, will be. In Romans 2, he says, But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, which is he's already established is the gospel here, so who do not obey the gospel, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and indignation. So this is an insight that if, the, if selfish ambition is still there, then you have not obeyed the gospel. You have not obeyed the truth. Those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth of the gospel. So something about losing our selfish ambition gets to the heart of what it means to obey the gospel, to obey repentance, that first step. Brother Dan was just saying that there's a sorrow that leads to death and a sorrow that leads to repentance. And I think that's illustrated in the life of Judas. And it's illustrated in the life of Peter. The apostle Peter had a lot of confidence in the flesh at the onset. And he would make great proclamations about what he would and would not do because he placed great confidence in his flesh. Jesus said, you're going to deny, deny me. And he said, no, though everyone forsake you, I will not deny you. I will go with you even to prison and to death. But we know that that did not occur. In fact, he denied him just as the Lord had, had predicted. And that was not some fateful predestination that he could not avoid. That was merely an accurate insight into the place where he put his trust. Flesh. And it always disappoints. So the Lord knew their grace is not flowing here because this man is still attached to human strength, not to the grace and strength of God. Amen. And so, so Peter was able to, to see Jesus across the courtyard of Caiaphas after he had just denied him. And it says that Jesus turned and looked at him. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. But this was the beginning of repentance. How do we know it was the beginning of repentance? Because then when the Lord visits him again at the seashore after the great catch in the morning, he, he, he tests how much confidence he still has. Simon Peter, do you love me more than all of these? And Peter doesn't say, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, I have affection for you. Jesus uses the word agape. Peter says, I have affection, phileo. Jesus doubles down, do you agape me more than all of these? Lord, I have phileo for you. Then the third time Jesus says, do you phileo me, Peter? And he's grieved that the third time he says phileo, which is the word Peter's been using. And he says, Lord, you know all things. There's a big change right there. He's no longer the knower. He's no longer the one to evaluate himself. You know all things. And he's grieved, but he's humble. And so grace can start flowing. And the Lord is saying to him, from now on, you're going to be fishers of men. From now on, you're going to feed my sheep. Whenever Peter's broken on his knees in the boat, or Peter's broken with low self-appraisal, the Lord is saying, you've got a purpose. Whenever he's exalted, the Lord's saying, Satan is going to sift you like wheat. And this is the sorrow that led to repentance. And we know that, that Peter, Peter's change was fully manifest on the day of Pentecost, when the one who once cowered before a servant girl stood before all of Jerusalem and a multitude from around the world and boldly declared the gospel of God. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. 
He was telling them, you can have what I have because I went through repentance. Now we see the flip side of that, which is Judas. And Judas is caught up in his own sin. Sin will take you farther than you want to go, the song says. And Judas doesn't fully realize where his sin is going to lead him. So he's caught up into the, the current of his sin. And it says that when he realized what he had done, he said, Ah, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he went and hanged himself. This is the sorrow that leads to despair, to self-pity. This is the same sorrow that King Saul had when he was rejected, when the kingdom was taken from him. He was not sorry for God's purpose. He was not sorry for the reproach he had caused. He was sorry for his loss personally. This is the sorrow of Esau. This is the sorrow of Cain. When Cain said, ah, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You just killed somebody, you dumbo. Your punishment is not too great for you to bear. You ought to be put to death yourself. But it's all about him, you see. And Esau also, we're told that Esau could find no place of repentance. Why could he find no place of repentance? Because he was still a victim. And he was a liar, therefore. He had made a sale. He had come to his brother and said, Give me that food and I will give you my birthright. He had sold his birthright for a mess of pottage, the Bible tells us. But when he comes to his father, he doesn't say, I sold my birthright because I'm a fool who doesn't care about the purpose of God. Instead, he said, my brother stole it from me. He's a victim. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So there's no repentance where the victim narrative persists. It is impossible. You can seek it. You can weep after your lost blessings, but you cannot find it as long as you're a victim. If that is an option to return to, then you have not come to repentance. You see, hell is the end of all victim narratives. Because God's not going to put any victims in hell. But if your path is going to take you to hell, there's a measure of culpability that you are not owning. <laughs> You say, the reason I'm this way is because someone else did such and such. Well, that may have made it much harder on you. That may have put a stumbling block in your path. God may hold them doubly accountable. They may deserve a millstone or any number of other things. But at the end of the day, if you are in sin, you're going to stand for your sin. And you're going to face eternal judgment for your sin. And if you deserve judgment, then you're not a victim. <laughs> You may not be guilty of what they did, but you're guilty of what you are. You are not receiving the grace of God that appears to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. You are not walking in the sorrow that leads to repentance and therefore to life, but the sorrow that leads to death and self-pity, which is where Judas ended. So we have said that repentance is dying, and we ask, what is it dying to? In Romans 5, Paul shows us that we are already dead in our trespasses. So what is repentance dying to? Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses 
even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one man many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not like that which came to the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I admit Paul's language can be a little bit intense sometimes as he builds one thing upon the other. But let's suffice it and summarize it to say this. He is talking about the reign of death being replaced by the reign of grace the reign of, of sin brings death and the reign of grace brings righteousness and life. And he wants that reign, not R-A-I-N, but the reign as of a king. He wants that reign to be realized through each individual's repentance. Amen. Spiritual death is what we die to because we are disconnected from the spirit who is life by sin. Amen. So what do we die to in repentance? We die to death. <laughs> we die to the death of separation from God caused by sin. That's what we die to. <laughs> so we, don't, we die to our will. We die to our image. We die to our ambitions. But in the broadest sense, we die to death. He says in Titus 2.11, as I have quoted, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. And that grace has done what? Absolving us of penalty? What is that grace of God appear doing? That grace of God has come as an, as an active agent, as a force in the world. What is the first place that grace was mentioned in, in the Bible? The, but Noah found grace. So in Genesis 6, it describes total debauchery. All of this sin, all of this violence, all of this rebellion. And God was sorry that He made man. But, but, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And what did that look like? What did it look like for Noah to find grace? Did he sit back in his tent when the thunder clouds were gathering and the animals were mooing and barking and growling outside? Honey, let's just rest in God. We found grace. Is that what he did? No, because the grace of God is not a passive agent. It is not an exemption. It is a power. It is an active agent. It has come to teach us to do something. And if it's not doing that, then it's quite possible we have not apprehended the grace of God. 
You know, the word he uses here for teach is paideo. And it's the word often translated as disciple or train. Amen? It's not teach as in to lecture. Amen? It's teach as in to train. I want to train you. So the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, training us to deny ungodliness. So grace doesn't say, oh, it doesn't matter anymore. You're covered by grace. Hogwash. Grace says, uh-uh, don't do that. <laughs> That's not God. Grace says, don't, don't say that. That's going to lead you down the wrong path. Grace is a trainer. <laughs> Has anybody ever gone through training, sports training? Amen. Well, grace is supposed to do that for your spiritual walk. It doesn't put a rubber stamp. You're good for God. Don't worry about it. You're covered by grace. That's hogwash grace. You can find that under the theological dictionary. That's man-made grace. That doesn't have anything in common with Scripture. The grace of God teaches. It disciples. It checks. And it tells us to say no. It empowers us to overcome ungodliness, and it deals with our worldly desires. It deals with sin right in our desire. Not in the extremity of our behavior, but in the source of our desire. You, you just finished this passage from Romans 5, but just to me, it gets me that he says that just as sin reigned Amen. through death, so now grace reigns Amen. through righteousness. You think about how does sin reign in your life. It's the, your source of authority. It's taking you places that, in a sense, you didn't want to go. Amen. You know, it, it overcomes you and begins leading you down a pathway because it, it assumes the place of preeminence in your life. Amen. And he's saying, just as sin was your master, Grace is going to be your master. He's Thank going you, to be Jesus. your king. He's going to be your Lord. He's going to take you in a way that you would not go. You just think of what he says in Romans 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But where is that eternal life found? It's found in Him. But how are we united with Him? In Romans 6 he says, We are united with Him through death. That is through our death. We have to die in order to find our place in Him. <laughs> Something has to come off the throne in order for grace to take the throne. In 1 Corinthians 15, 21, he says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And that's the word resurrected. It's the same when he says, You who once were dead, He made alive. You know, they, it could be just as easily translated, He resurrected. <laughs> so we were dead in our transgressions and sins. That was our native condition. We were walking dead men. We were diffusing the aroma of death everywhere we went. But God, through His Spirit, made us alive. He resurrected us. James says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then lust, when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is accomplished, brings forth what? Yes. So it is, our, it is the tyranny of our desires that keeps us in death. Desires Amen. lead to behavior, and when that's finished, it's death. So the tyranny of human desires is the status of death. It is the condition of death. So we die to death. We die to the slavery of our own corrupted desires and we find life. 
Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Where was death? In trespass. In crossing boundaries. That's what trespass means. To go into places you shouldn't go. Trespass and sins. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. So the devil works through disobedience. The devil works through this trespass dynamic. Among them, we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. He ties it like James to desires, the lusts of our flesh. Indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Okay, there's another one. The desires of the mind. Some will give up the desires of the flesh, but they hold to the desires of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen. So when God makes us alive, Amen. He says grace has saved us. Thank you, Jesus. But God makes us alive by ending the tyranny of desires that results in death. Do you see it? Do you see how grace is working here? Now, there's an important element here. He tells us that we were... By mistakes, children of wrath. Is that correct? No. What does he tell us? We were by nature children of wrath. You see, in this counterfeit repentance, we are, in, we are basically good, but we've done bad things. That's the apologies that never bring about, that never end the war, and will ultimately lead either to rebellion or despair. But he says we were by nature children of wrath. So the problem to be solved is not a I did. That's not the problem. The problem to be solved is an I am. This is who I am. I am by nature. Something at my nature has got to change. <laughs> That's what the psalmist teaches us. That we were born in sin and shaped in iniquity. The therapeutic society says you're basically good, but you had bad inputs. You had a flawed upbringing. Well, you, were, you lived so that you had a flawed upbringing. But they basically teach that you're good. This is what, this is what the, the, the dogma of communism and socialism and Hegelianism is built upon. Rousseau's philosophy that you're basically good. More man is born free, but everywhere in chains. That is a lie. Man is born in chains, but everywhere God is saying you can be free if you'll die to the tyranny of self-will and let Jesus take the throne of your life. So it is a nature problem. And there's got to be this core responsibility for our native condition, for our human fallen rebellious nature, for that thing in us that will never be taught to be like God, but must instead die so that a new nature might be born in its place. It must have been 20 years ago that my mom said, and we have built on it at great length since, she said, you know, it struck me today while I was praying that there's a certain kind of discipleship that produces more sin. She said, if you prune a tree it bears more fruit. If you sever the root of that tree, 
it's dead. <laughs> and there is a certain kind of Christian training that does not deal with the core Amen. sinful nature. It prunes that nature, and that nature becomes more clever, more resilient, like a bacteria encountering low doses of antibiotics. It becomes resistant to the Holy Spirit, Amen. resistant to the truth. And, and if you prune the tree of your fallen nature, you're going to see more sin produce. It may be more hidden sin, more clever sin, more manipulative sin, but it will be more sin. But if you let a responsibility take hold of you that says, God, this isn't what I did. This is who I am. Amen. Then maybe you can let grace put the axe to the root at the very core of your being. Amen. Amen. And that is the promise. That is the mercy extended to us. So death reigns through sin. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his thought was only toward evil continually. Psalms, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Jeremiah, the heart is more deceitful than all, and is desperately wicked. Who can understand it? It's a nature problem. Jesus, why are you asking me about what is good? There is none good except God. And he goes on. Jesus, that which proceeds out of a man's heart is what defiles him. From out of his heart come all kinds of evils. So it's not a circumstance problem. It's not an upbringing problem. It's a nature problem. It's a heart problem. It's a me problem. There is none righteous, Paul. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Romans, again, Paul. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Only the sick know they need a physician. And we've got to understand that this is not a circumstantial peripheral condition that we're suffering from. This is us. This is a core problem with a core remedy. Thank you, Jesus. Repentance is dying to the power that brings death. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? The mind is the throne of the flesh and is put forth as the most implacable enemy of God. If sin has overcome us, its bunker is the deceptive, exalted thinking of the carnal mind. Nothing is so indicative of unrepentance as our ability to rationalize our way out of the word that should pierce us through. Amen. Those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, Repentance is dying to death, but it's the mind set on the flesh that is the bunker of this problem. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mind is the battleground. 
not just filthy thoughts, but the seat of human intellect as the seat of authority. Do you understand? The devil gave us a certain kind of wisdom when he broke our relationship with God. What was the kind of wisdom that the devil gave us? Suspicion. People say, people imagine that the first sin was biting into some piece of fruit. No. The first sin was the hermeneutic of suspicion. In mythology, they all, all the ancient uh, traditions, all the ancient religions who have a creation story, they all have a story of a man and a woman in a garden at a tree with a snake. Do you know that? They all do. All of the ancient mythologies all have that story at their basis. But the problem is that in all of them, the serpent brings salvation. He brings the power to transcend their current state into another state. In all of them, the serpent is a good thing. And the serpent is called Hermes. <laughs> and he brings them a certain kind of wisdom. And in all the mythologies, it's a good turn. And only in Judaism is it a bad turn. Is it a fall instead of an ascent? <laughs> the devil at the fall said to those who were made in the image of God, I will make you like God. And they all said, let's do it. And for thousands of years, mankind has been on this odyssey of ascent. But at the end of time, we see that what man ends up worshiping and what man, man ends up taking on himself is what? The image of God? The image of a beast. So the devil promises godhood and sells beastliness. And throughout history, the rebellion of man, and whenever man comes close to usurping God's place, he is reduced to the level of a beast. Nebuchadnezzar says, look at great Babylon which I have made, and he turns into an animal. Daniel describes the individual kings, and then the states themselves, and then statism itself as beasts. Jesus calls them dogs and foxes, and snakes and swine. Not to be mean, but to show that in grasping to be like gods, we release those instincts that take us toward being like animals, being like beasts. But in being most like God is, is in taking this mind on you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and became like a servant. So the devil promises divinity, but ends in the status of a beast, and the Lord invites us to humility and says that we will be made into the likeness of God through this means. And didn't he begin actually by casting suspicion on the nature of God? That's his first step. Did God really say? What was God's motive? Was it really to, to, for your good? No, no. It was to protect himself. And that suspicion of authority is the beginning. You help me come back to my point, which the first sin was not the bite. The first sin was suspicion. And the, that suspicion is called the hermeneutic of suspicion. Where do you think the word hermeneutic comes from? Hermes. Hermes. The hermeneutic of suspicion. Uh, did God really say? You see, repentance changes that. And it doesn't mean that we're not careful with people, but it means that the hermeneutic of suspicion turns right here. 
and says, the first one I'm going to question is me. The first one I'm going to doubt is me. <laughs> the first motives I'm going to challenge are mine. That's the first sin. It's the mind set on the flesh. It's the mind exalted above God. Does Jesus satisfy our need to repent? Does He repent for us, requiring that we don't need to repent? Jesus did it all. No, He did not. Amen. He did what none of us can do. He paid the price of a sinless sacrifice. We couldn't die for our own sins. Praise God, He did it. He Himself is the propitiation of our sins and not of ours only, but those of the whole world. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So He did something that we cannot do, but He did not do for us what God has called us to do, which is to repent. Somebody says to me, well, <clears throat> I looked up the meaning of repentance and it, it's the etymology in the Greek means to turn. So it just means change your mind, you know. Oh yeah, just like flip a switch. I always like chocolate. I like vanilla. <laughs> Change your mind. You see, this is the rationalization that has pervaded the church that has completely diluted it of power. I hope this sounds familiar to you because this is where, this is where the power has been sucked out of the church. Oh, it just, just change your mind. Is a human capable of changing his mind? No. This is the core. This is where sin reigns. Amen. This is the mind that is implacably opposed to God, that is hostile toward God, and cannot subject itself to the law of God. So it's not going to be an act of human will to flip a switch. Change my mind. But the grace of God has appeared to all men. Amen. And we have the ability to respond to that grace by that grace. And I think of how Paul just in Romans 7 talks about, he says, With my mind I serve the law of God, but something else is at work in my members. So that the good that I will to do, I find myself not doing it. And the evil that I will not to do, I find myself doing it anyway. So in other words... Our good intentions or our idea that I'm going to do better now does not save us. It may be part of the process, part of the turning, but it's not the power. Amen. Power has got to come from God. Amen. So there's got to be a renunciation of the core of who we are, not just a, I'm going to pick myself up by my own bootstraps, I'm going to enroll in a self-help program, and I'm going to do better. I'm going, to have a, I'm going to have a transformation in my life. Amen. Good luck with that. Amen. Have you tried that? Amen. I tried that. Amen. <laughs> Wasn't enough. It is a choice. But the Arminians will say, I can make the choice. It's mine to make. And the Calvinists will say, no, God has to do the work. But it's a combination. You cannot make the choice unless God is giving the grace for you to make the choice. But you still have to make the choice you still have to exercise your freedom as a free agent. So Jesus wept over Jerusalem and He said, God says, I would have gathered you, but you were not willing. So we have God would have done something in the world and He didn't do it 
because of human unwillingness. So in this case, we see they did not make the choice. They did not say, I will. <laughs> they did not accept the authority at the temple Amen. that Jesus brought to them. But they could have. His grace was there for them to do it, but they didn't do it. So it's not just a choice, and it's not just God's behavior. It's not monergism, it's synergism. So the monergistic view says God's the sole actor, and the Arminian view says, no, we can decide whenever we want, but it's really a synergism where God has to give us the power, and then He says to us, choose ye this day whom you will serve. If it seems good to you, serve God. So who must do the dying? Knowing this, our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. He who has died is freed from sin. And, and what changes is that we will no longer be slaves. That's Romans 6, 6, 7. So we will no longer be slaves to sin. God is not ending our proclivity to make mistakes. James says, we all stumble in many ways. If any man stumbleth not in what he says, he is a perfect man. Amen? John says, if anyone, speaking to the church, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. So we're not saying that we are going to eliminate sin or, or mistakes from our life. But a mistake describes the deviation from a pattern. And what's going to change is the Lord. <laughs> Amen. Is sin going to be the Lord of our life, or is Jesus going to be the Lord of our life? The word he uses here is mastery. Sin shall not have mastery over you. And this is a slave term. So if, if, if you were to go to a slave, and you were to see that he had a master, most of his life, most of his waking hours are devoted to serving that master. Does that mean that he never does anything that that master doesn't approve of. No, he probably does. He probably gets corrected. He probably gets rebuked. But the pattern, the description of his life is that he is the servant and slave of his master. There is a point where his rebellion against that mastery could become such that the master is no longer his master, that he is no longer a slave by any meaningful definition. He is instead a rebel. And so, we're not saying that true repentance ends the possibility of error. We're saying it changes masters. It changes the reign of your life. Who is the Lord of your life? Amen? So Galatians 5.18 says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You are not under that curse of the law. In Galatians 5.24, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now I need you to pay attention to who has crucified it. It does not say those who belong to Christ Jesus, Jesus has crucified their flesh. That is not what he says. He says those who belong to Him have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. So we must do the dying. We must do the crucifying. And we cannot belong to Jesus as long as we belong to sin. As long as we are the slaves of sin, we cannot belong. But according to Galatians 5.24, if we will die to that one master, 
we can be found to be another. In Colossians 3.3, he says, You have died. You have died. We need to be able to honestly say to God, I have died. Not Jesus died for me. That is, that's the starting point. And that's what this is all about. But in order to partake of that which He did for me, I have got to be, something in me has got to die. I have died. Paul says, you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So part of what death entails is obscurity of our image. We go from being seen to being hidden when we repent. <laughs> We grow, grow from having an image, from having an ambition, from having a vanity, to being, where are they? I don't see anybody but Jesus Amen. getting the glory here. Amen. 2 Timothy 2.11, 2, it is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with Him, we will live with Him. If we died with Him. <laughs> this is repentance. And that's what I'm saying. It absolutely entails changing and destroying the bunker of the mind set against God. That is absolutely at its essence. But it's not enough to simply take that metaphor of repentance and skip everything else that Paul uses to describe this event. This is a death. This is something radical, painful. Paul makes your repentance most analogous to death on a Roman cross. Not, a, oh, I like vanilla. I don't like chocolate anymore. That's not it. Colossians 2.20. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live. It's the I who has died. <laughs> and it is no longer the I who lives. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. We must become dead. We must die to the death of sin and separation from God. When the reign of sin is broken, then there is a repentance we do not repent from. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who are in the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. So the carnal nature, as long as it lives in our life, the law of judgment still has jurisdiction over it. The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. But if he dies, then a new marriage is able to occur. And he is speaking of our relationship with Christ. So do you see why it is essential that something die? We have been married to the wrong spouse. We have been married to the tyrant of self-will. And as long as that tyrant lives in our lives, then judgment has jurisdiction over us. But if that tyrant dies, we are free to marry another, the Lord Jesus. But if we marry him while that tyrant yet lives, we commit adultery. We cause him to commit adultery. We join ourselves to Christ while yet joined to another Lord and Master, the tyrant of self-will. Romans 7, 6, But we know we have been released from the law. How have we been released? Having died to that by which we were bound. <laughs> That's how we've been released from the law. Not by saying, oh, there's no more law. We died to that which the law had jurisdiction over so that we will serve in the newness of the Spirit 
and not in the oldness of the letter. Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. One says it's your reasonable form of worship. Paul in Galatians 6.14, May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me, and I have been crucified to the world. That's showing what we're dying to. What are we dying to? First and foremost, the carnal mind. That's the mind changed. The tree of knowledge is the starting point of sin, and it grows between our ears. It is where we rationalize disobedience and the acceptance of the patterns of death that mark this world. So Romans 8 says, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, and the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God and cannot please Him. Jesus says, but He turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you set your mind not on God's interests, but on man's. This computer, this engine of human activity is either going to be according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 2, We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, things which we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. What kind of words are we supposed to use? Spiritual words. What kind of thoughts are we supposed to use? Spiritual thoughts. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by none. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. It doesn't say I have it. It says we have it. <laughs> We've changed this mind for the mind that we share together, the access to Christ's mind that we share together. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile, how are you hostile? In your mind, engaged in evil deeds, God has remedied that. So our hostility to God, our rebellion, is in our mind. You were dead in your trespasses in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of this age, of the Spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Among, those, among them we too formerly walked in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Remember that you were separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He says, I say this, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds, of their thinking. Sin deceived us through the carnal mind, the rationalization of unrighteousness. We could go on more scriptures here. He says, uh, They did not know God, but they became hardened. In their futile speculations, their foolish hearts were darkened. In Romans 1, he says, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's called today, so that none will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Amen. Not, not by the, the power or the temptation of sin, but by the deceitfulness of sin. By how we rationalize it. 
For sin, taking an opportunity through the command, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So if there was no deception, there would have been no death. But we're dying to the death that comes through the deception of the proud tree of knowledge growing between our ears. But the evil man, men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. We've got to get back to the garden. We've got to get back to the tree of life. We've got to reject the tree of knowledge and that kind of wisdom that is the hermeneutic of suspicion. This kind of wisdom is below. It is earthly, sensual, and demonic. But there is a wisdom from above that brings us into relationship, right relationship with God. I cannot decide for myself. That is the big change. <laughs> I cannot decide what is right apart from relationship. I need to know this wisdom through my relationship with God in the spirit of the day, not through the exalted speculations, futile speculations of my carnal mind. Jeremiah was told by the Lord that he was called to a ministry where he was going to do six things, and four of them were negative. He said, See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to plant, and to build. And similarly, two-thirds of the gospel is negative. It is death and it is burial. It is dealing with the demagogues of our own wills. It is dealing with all the antichrists that want to sit enthroned on our own hearts. God has got to pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow so that He can plant and He can build. Thank you, Jesus. And all of this negative work is to, is to plow up some fertile ground where the seed of the Spirit can be planted and not choked. Amen. But flourish. All of this lays the axe to the root of a certain tree. It's the tree of exalted knowledge that lives inside of us. And that's the tree John was saying the axe was laid to the root of. It's not an axe laid to the branch. It's an axe laid to the root. And what is that axe? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How do we die? We fall on the sword that pierces us through. That sword can do two things to us. I remember the first time Brother Randy showed us the parallel of the sword's work in Acts 2 and the sword's work in Acts 7. But in both places it says that when the word of God was spoken, they were pierced to the heart. In Acts 2, Peter spoke the word of God because the word is what puts us to death. The Word is what we say, that's truth, that's reality. I want to fall on that rock and be broken. The sword of the Spirit came forth through Peter in his first sermon. And they said, men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? And Peter told them, you need to repent. You need to be baptized and you need to be filled. You're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But then the same word came to them through Stephen. Stephen was sharp. He was mean. <laughs> He was not a sweet preacher. He had not gone to homiletic school. <clears throat> and he preached the truth right where it hurt. And it says all of them who were gathered around, they were pierced in the heart. Just like in Acts. 
But what did they do? They gnashed their teeth and picked up stones. I don't like this. They hadn't prepared the way. The roadblocks were still there. Stones were still ready to be thrown. Amen. God help us. Help us to see that repentance remedies the authority that would seek to usurp God's place. Help us to see that repentance is dying not to what I've done, but to who I am. Help us to see that the axe has got to go to the root and that we are by nature the problem, not by symptoms, not by contamination. Help us to see that, that this unrepentance is living in the stronghold of our rationalizations that need to be brought into captivity to the mind of Christ. Help us to reject the tree of knowledge and turn back to the tree of life. Amen. And to hear His voice in the garden and strip away the fig leaves and say, Here I am, Lord. Help me. Change me. Free me. Help me to die to that which I am enslaved by. Thank you, Jesus.